Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. Today, we are featuring part one of highlights from the 2022 Maryland Stavanger Social Justice Symposium that happened on April 5th and was recorded over Zoom. The first speaker we will hear from is Dr. Clint McCann, Evangelical Professor of Biblical Interpretation at Eden Seminary in Webster Groves, Missouri. Dr. McCann set the stage for the symposium, grounding the work for justice in God's vision for humanity found in the Bible. Um, So my task, as I understand it, is to provide a kind of biblical theological uh, foundation for affirming the dignity of every single human being everywhere. And that's related to uh, 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 voting. Uh, People who don't feel worthwhile don't bother to vote. Uh, And when people don't bother to vote, all kinds of terrible things can happen. Um, Notice the uh, theme for today, rooted in justice, is a kind of agricultural sort of thing. The logo is a picture of a tree with roots. Uh, The uh, uh, organizers of the event chose Psalm 85, verses 10 to 13. Uh, uh, as a point of departure, so that's where we're going to start. It's one of my favorite texts because it features uh, uh, some of the, several of the most important words in the whole Bible, not just the Hebrew Scripture, Original Testament, but the whole Bible. Uh, We're not looking at the whole Psalm, so I'm going to just briefly uh, uh, alert you to what led up to verses 10 to 13. We don't know exactly when Psalm 85 originated or out of what context, but it's very clear that something uh, is challenging the community of the faithful. There has been some setback. There is some ongoing need. So in the verses leading up to verse 10, uh, the psalmist, they ask God, for instance, to restore us again. I'm not sure what the problem was, but they need more help. And they ask, that's verse 4, and they ask God to revive us again. That's verse 6. And then in verse 8, they invite God to show us your steadfast love. Now, that's a word that's going to recur again. And some of you who have heard me talk know that the single most important stylistic device in Hebrew poetry and Hebrew narrative is simple repetition. So look for things that occur over and over again. They ask God to show us your steadfast love and grant us your salvation. And they affirm that God's going to do that. So that verses 10 to 13 is a kind of, you could call it a salvation description or a portrayal of life in the world as God intends human life in the world to be. What does the life look like when it's God-like. Now, verses uh, verses 10 to 13 are lovely poetry uh, and poetic images. These important steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Steadfast love, I tell my students here at Eden Seminary, that's the single most important word in the entire Hebrew Scripture uh, Original Testament. Uh, It's it's kind of a one-word summary of the character of God. The New Testament knows that too, of course. God is love. Right? So steadfast love and faithfulness, they're often paired in the uh, Hebrew Bible uh, as early as Exodus 34, 6, where God introduces God's self right, to Moses, uh, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Hebrew word is one which I hope you have heard at least, and I think some of you know if you've ever heard me talk before, it's chesed. 
chesed. Uh, steadfast love, loving kindness, faithful love, covenant love, active love, it has all kinds, covenant loyalty, it has all kinds of uh, translations, but it's critical. So steadfast love and faithfulness will meet righteousness and peace. If steadfast love and faithfulness are a kind of one word summary of the character of God, then righteousness and peace are a kind of summary, a two word summary in this case, of the will of God, the purposes of God for the world. Now there's a third word that belongs with them, justice. Uh, it's not here, but we're going to come to that when we get to Psalm 82 in just a minute. So these high sounding, incredibly important theological words are here. Uh, steadfast love and faithfulness will meet, righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Uh, faithfulness springs up from the ground. Notice the agricultural imagery here because that's important. Righteousness looks down from the sky. And then righteousness. How many times does righteousness occur here? Three times. You see, that's not accidental. It's a, a God wants the world to be right. We'll see how further in a minute. Righteousness will go before God and make a path for God's steps. Now, embedded in this portrayal, salvation portrayal with all these incredibly important theological words is a much more prosaic observation, verse 12, it seems to me. But it defines what all this other stuff is all about. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Notice how important the juxtaposition is. The land will yield its increase. Or as the CEB puts it, the land will yield its produce. What is produce? Food. You see what this remarkable juxtaposition is communicating? That the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the righteousness and the peace of God are tangibly, visibly present in God's provision of food. Now, remember, let's talk about context. We talk about context at Eden Seminary all the time, and appropriately so. Let's talk about context. This psalm originated in a context where everybody, essentially everybody, almost everybody, lived on a little farm. And they grew their own food. So what they needed on a daily, seasonal basis is food. They have to have food to survive and thrive. And the love of God is known, they affirm, in the provision of produce, the provision of food. Now, let's move to our context. Any of you grow your own food? Good. Some of you do. Uh, if I had to grow my own food, uh, I wouldn't live very long. Uh, I buy my food. Most of us in this urbanized, suburbanized, globalized economy don't live on farms anymore. We have to depend on purchasing food. But, you see, I still want to make a connection between Psalm 85 and our contemporary context. And I want to say that from my biblical perspective, I want to treat what sustains my life not simply as something I deserve or earn by my hard work. I want to treat that as a gift of God. You see, so I'm still going to say that what God intends is the provision in every way for the survival and the thriving of humankind. Everybody, you see. Uh, so what do we need? What, what, what represents food? You know, we've we got to have money, right? Uh, sometimes we call money what? That bread. bread, yeah, the basic food. And that, that makes sense because in our contemporary context, we need money. 
People need money, and if they don't have money, they need what money could provide them. We need uh, livable wages. We need opportunities for uh, significant, meaningful employment that pay livable wages, you see. Uh, $12 won't do it, uh, uh, and the Missouri legislature won't even go that far, uh, you see. Uh, we need uh, edu access to education. Uh, we need access to health care. All of those things in our contemporary world are food. It's what it takes to survive and thrive. And the message of Psalm 85 is that's what God wills. That kind of comprehensive provision for everyone to survive at a minimum, but also uh, to thrive. God, the way God intends the world is that everybody be provided for. We're going to shift gears just a moment here to take you to Psalm 82. Remember, this is the Maryland Stavanger Symposium uh, for Social Justice, and our topic for the day is rooted in justice. And Psalm 82 is all about justice. If you read the NRSV or the CEB even, uh, it's not particularly helpful in recognizing or communicating the repetition of the word justice. So I've made my own translation here. Uh, and if you can see it, you'll notice that the word justice occurs in every verse for the first section of the psalm. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and then it occurs again at the end. So justice is crucial. Uh, the Hebrew poets repeated what they wanted us to recognize, know about, think about, pursue, and so on. Now, Psalm, 80, uh, psalm 82 is different than any other psalm. It's not a song of praise. It's not a prayer for help. Most of the psalms are one or the other of those. It tells a story. It's a very interesting story. It's a story that nobody would have actually witnessed. So it's an imagined scenario. And in this imagined scenario, God puts the other gods and goddesses of the context on trial. It's not because God is uh, wanting to be simply exclusive. The issue is justice. You see, the trial of God uh, uh, putting the other gods on trial, it, it revolves around justice, or more accurately, the failure of the gods and goddesses of the context to do justice. After God interrupts a meeting of the deities, God announces this, how long will you pursue justice unjustly uh, and take sides with the wicked? The wicked here being not the you know, morally corrupt or anything, but the powerful who are using their power and resources to exploit someone else. Give justice to the weak and the orphans, set things right for the lowly and destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked, the powerful. Again, that's what it means to be God, is to share that commitment to what biblically speaking is justice. And notice, justice is not giving people what they deserve or don't deserve for that matter, Justice is giving everyone what they need, beginning with the most needy. Notice the repetition again. Needy, uh, uh, weak, orphan, those were folks who would have been left out of the system, we might say. And there's still lots of folks in our contemporary context who are left out of the system, unable to survive and thrive. So any justice is crucial. Notice verse five. The poet recognizes that in the absence of justice, the world falls apart. Now, he's, the, the poet is using a kind of worldview that we don't share. Uh, but in their view, the mountains held up the firmament, right? The dome firmament, 
and held the land in place so the waters below wouldn't bubble up. A worst case scenario in this cosmology is for the mountains, the foundations of the earth to shake because everything reverts to a kind of watery, chaotic mess. And, and we don't think like that in terms of cosmology, but we better think that way in terms of principle. Because what is being said here is that in the presence of ongoing systemic injustice, chaos will ensue. And, it, and you don't have to look far to see it, friends. You don't have to look far to see it. It's not just a war in Ukraine. Uh, it's chaos, violence, uh, poverty, hunger, uh, even in Webster Groves, certainly in the city of St. Louis, but throughout the United States and certainly throughout the world. Injustice. Uh, will t return us to chaos, which is why the prayer ends with the prayer for justice. Arise, O God, establish justice on earth, for all the nations belong to you. All the nations, that's pretty much who? Everybody. Everybody is in God's view. God wills the well-being of everyone, not just U.S. citizens here. God wills the well-being of the human family. That's what justice represents. The provision, the attention to and provision for the human family beginning with the most vulnerable. This message of the well God's will for the well-being of humankind resonates throughout the canon. The prophets in particular, you see. When the kings, the power people, fail to do justice and righteousness, the prophets show up. And they say things like, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite text. Uh, and they say things, and some of you know this by heart. Uh, what does the Lord require of you, desire of you, but to do what? Justice. To do justice. To love what? Kindness is what they say. That's hesed, you see. It's to love what God loves, or to be, to love what God's very character is. To love hesed and to walk humbly. Or I actually, I like the translation attentively. To walk attentively to your God. Because if you attend to what God wants, You'll be about, will be about justice, biblically defined, you see, as attentiveness to and provision for the human family. Okay, one more. This is a quote from William Plaker, a systematic theologian who knew the Bible well, uh, and he's commenting on John 1.14, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So he's commenting on the incarnation, which lies at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, full of grace and truth, by the way. Uh, that John talks about as being fleshed out in Jesus, that's steadfast love and righteousness, if you put it back into Hebrew. So here's Plaker's quote. Jesus Christ united humanity with divinity, thereby transforming what it is to be human. We human beings turn away and separate ourselves from God, but in Christ, divinity is reunited with humanity. In our culture, where many people are told explicitly or implicitly that they are worthless, Christian faith must declare all the more boldly that the humanity of every single human being has been united to God in Christ. From a Christian point of view, that is the foundation, along with the Psalms and the prophets, that is the foundation for claiming our dignity and embracing our God-given power. Friends, thank you. The second speaker is Bethany johnson Jevois, the president and CEO of the Deaconess Foundation of St. Louis and the associate pastor of Monument of Faith Church of God in Christ in Jennings, Missouri. 
She talked about earning the trust of people who have been marginalized so that they might discover their power through voting. The words participatory democracy has a kind of oomph to it. Like, let it roll off your tongue. Participatory democracy. Go ahead. Right? Your whole body kind of wants to do a thing with the words participatory democracy. It sounds so lofty and so dignified. But what does it really mean? Participatory democracy is a model of democracy in which citizens are provided power to make political decisions. Power to make political decisions. It implies that people are in power. Not a person, not a name, but that people are in power. And I love the sound and the visual in my mind of this commitment. Voting is a right among the elements of a participatory democracy that allows citizens to make their voices heard. But the reality is that as many as half of eligible voters in the US still don't participate in the election process, in the most sacred form of our democracy. And we are not blind to efforts to systematically shut out more and more people, especially people of the global majority, making us ineligible by any means or reasons necessary. And the U.S. lags far behind most other like countries when it comes to voter turnout. And we call ourselves developed. According to Global Citizen, among the five voting barriers Americans face, the following reason is the one I've witnessed play out within my community as reflected in our work in Jennings Fourth Ward and among young adults, quote, citizens are less likely to vote if they don't think their ballot matters. In a country that has built its economic success violating its moral consciousness, justifying enslavement and systematic suppression of African and poor people for profit and for gain, then through tools of slavery and Jim Crow laws, now through banking and housing practices, mass incarceration and human trafficking, just to name a few, the erosion of America's spiritual and moral foundation has reached the point of what is described in 1 Timothy 4 and 2. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And said again in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, the latter part, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Over time, when you go over your moral imperative and you begin to ignore it and you justify enslavement, over and over again, your conscience becomes seared and dead. When a country continues to send you direct and subliminal messages that you shouldn't exist, you begin to believe that. This notion of your own invisibility becomes your reality. When a country loses its values of human dignity, its citizenry reflects that.
Examine this catch-22 between invisibility and visibility. It's a catch. Recognition of self, recognition at all, is predicated on visibility. To see oneself in the world has the power to transform existence into vibrancy. That's how important it is to see oneself. And here's the reverse. Visibility is powerful, yes, but it's dangerous. Either way you go, it's a catch. If you're not a white, heterosexual, male, cisgender, Christian in America, or married to one, visibility can cost you your job, your family, your friends, your church, your life, and your very sense of belonging. Attribution to Melanie P. Moore in her article, Invisible Woman, a Reflection on Being Seen in America. So now imagine that I'm speaking to the 50 and 60 something members of my church congregation, imploring them to vote, centering around the need to pass, in this case, Medicaid expansion. And for this age group, it was a matter of when and where, and they were on it. But my 20 and 30 somethings told me, quote, I'll do what you say because I trust you, AP, AP associate pastor. I trust you, AP, and I want to be obedient, but I don't think my vote matters, and my friends don't vote either for the same reason. In partnership with MCU, we have a goal of increasing voter participation in Jennings by 10% in the midterm elections and it's needed because in a recent mayor's election where 4,000 votes were cast, yay, 2,500 were not. So we're very clear what we're up against. And we're running out of time, and we just started. We're running out of time, Denise. So while I get the Medicaid expansion is a means of job security and family economic stability and health, and while we are privileged to connect the strategy dots to the 2020 census count being the basis of our region receiving 500 million in the city and 27 million in the county and ARPA funds, I get that. But how do we make this connection stick and motivate our electorate who doesn't feel or see the impact in their day-to-day -day lives? They don't get what 2020 had to do with my now when I'm struggling to survive. How do we transform existence into vibrancy? I don't have the full answer, sorry. <laughs> but that's why we're here today, right? Is to grapple with you on solutions sourced in wisdoms of the collective. I don't know about you, but I get smarter in group. I get smarter in community and team. I make more sense, I'm less embarrassed, when I can form solutions with people that wear the Star of David while I wear the cross. That, that makes me better. So I got six things to offer because I don't know the answer, but I do believe I'm asking the right question. Number one, we need strategies to bolster our, bolster our vision of participatory democracy. Must begin with winning back the trust of those whose trust has been broken. In 1997, 64% of Americans put a very great or good deal of trust in the political competence of their fellow citizens. Today, only one third of people feel that way. 
Only one third of people feel like they have a very great or good deal of trust in their fellow citizens. And a 2019 Pew survey found that the majority of Americans say most people can't be trusted. Yes, sit with that. That was my response. 2019, before pandemic, before the insurrection, before that, they said most people can't be trusted. And it's even tougher in the future. Only 13% of the we will not be silent millennial generation said America is the greatest country in the world. Only 13% compared with 45% of the silent generation. Nobody is singing, I'm proud to be an American anymore. You see, this is an issue because change moves at the speed of trust. And when trust is high, hard things are easy. But when trust is low, easy things are hard. And St. Louis is a bellwether city in the world. Forget the nation. In the world. So the uprising of Ferguson sparked by the killing of Mike Brown on August 9th was the beginning of our forced reckoning as we are reaping what we have sown in the breakdown of trusted relationships. We earned that. It didn't just poof happen to us. We earned our city burning and being on fire. We knew that trust between people, their governments, their worship centers, their healthcare providers, their friendships, who were looked to for wisdom has been broken. Information is no longer trustable. For many, this occurrence what happened way before vaccine communication and masking. Having faith in or faith about is absolutely waning. And a crisis of trust is the most serious and sobering of all crises because why? Change moves at the speed of trust. Number two, the vote has to be connected to hope for real material change, that casting this vote will make a difference in my life, my life, my why, because my concerns and my well-being matters and my existence is worth fighting for. Don't come at me with your agenda as to why I should vote. I don't care about your life. I care about my existence. To be here. To live and to thrive. We need way more compelling communication frames that speak to this than the flat stuff we got now that's not resonating. Number three, engagement has to be intensive on the local level by people who live in the community coupled with people who know how to relate to people, who know how to just talk honest without big words and flags and things to people. Just, just talk to people. And it has to be done on and off cycle of election years. We can't just pop up, hey, how you doing? We care about you now. Number four, foundationally, a vibrant pipeline of civically minded, on fire young people is essential. No disrespect to this group, love you. And we need these chairs filled in with the both end of young energy. Five, politicians who reflect our values have to be supported not only during the election, but once they get seated, they feel really isolated and alone they too feel forgotten about. And training has to continue, and the we got you has to continue with those who can remain in elected position. It's a lonely place. 
Number six, I'll close on this final point. Reclaiming our dignity happens when this nation's seared conscience is healed. That's a root cause, in my opinion, is our seared conscience. First Timothy 1.19, I leave with you. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. Thank you for listening to part one of highlights from the 2022 Maryland Stavanger Social Justice Symposium. If you're ready to join MCU in the work for justice in the St. Louis area, contact us at 314-367-3484 or email us at office at mcustl.com. You can learn more about and contribute to Metropolitan Congregations United on our website at mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.